How long, O Lord? How long? Can't read through many of the Psalms without coming across that question. The Bible presses in on people's real situations. People who love the Lord and who know the Lord and who are hoping in the Lord. And yet all the various trials of life meet people in real time. And they ask the Lord honestly, but desperately, how long until you break through? How long until the problem ends? How long until the gloom lifts? How long, oh Lord? I wonder if you've ever had enough courage to address God like that. I wonder if that's the heartbeat that's going on inside of you right now. So many things are going on in the world. So many things going on in your life. You've cried out to the Lord. You've prayed. You've shared with other people. You've come to church. You've done all the things that you think you should do. And yet God has not broken through in the way that you expected him to. And this morning you're asking, maybe not out loud, but somewhere hidden in the recesses of your heart, how long, oh Lord? The Lord calls us to wait on him. In our waiting, sometimes we wail and weep. Sometimes we're tempted to walk away. Morning, as we cry out, asking the Lord, how long? The Lord shows us that we can trust him. That however long he might cause us to wait for him, it is worth it. Because in our waiting, the Lord is working for our good. We see that this morning in our passage as we continue the study of the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, if you're using one of the Bibles provided under the chairs, you can find it on page 223. If you don't have a Bible of your own, then uh, that is our pretty inexpensive gift to you this Christmas. You can have a Bible of your own, of your very own pew Bible um, to take home with you. We want you to have your own copy of God's word so that you can read what the Lord has to say to his people. Ruth chapter 3, I'll read the entire chapter and then we'll walk through this book together. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. 
Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yeah, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. As we read through Ruth chapter 3, this is what I think the, the author's main point is. And so the main point of our passage this morning, even with our best plans, we must still wait on God to provide for us according to his purposes. Even with our best plans, we must still Wait on God to provide for us according to his purposes. As we walk through this chapter, I think we see four things come into focus as it relates to how God works things out using people and circumstances. So four points to the sermon. First, we see planning and the providence of God. We see that in verses one through five. Second, we see resolve and the providence of God. We see that in verses 6 through 11. Third, we see obstacles and the providence of God. We see that in verse 12. And fourth, we see waiting on the providence of God. We see that in verses 13 through 18. So, number one, planning in the providence of God. Number two, resolve and the providence of God. Number three, obstacles and the providence of God. And number four, waiting on the providence of God. And by providence, I simply mean all the ways God works to provide for his people according to his purposes. So number one, planning and the providence of God. To briefly recap where we've been so far in this unfolding story, Chapter 1 has introduced us to Naomi and Ruth's tragedies. Naomi had experienced a famine in Israel, and so she left with her husband and her two sons to go to the country of, 
of Moab. There her husband, Elimelech, died. And there her two sons married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But then her two sons died. And so Naomi and Orpah and Ruth were left alone with none to provide for and protect them. Naomi heard that food was available in Israel again. God had visited his people and shown favor to them. So Naomi packed up and headed home. And her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, followed her. But Naomi told them to go back to their native land of Moab, for there was nothing for them with her. They should go back and find husbands who'd care for them. Orpah returned, but Ruth clung to Naomi and pledged her allegiance both to Naomi and her God. So the two women came back to Israel and to the land of Judah and to the city of Bethlehem, but alone and poor. In chapter 2, we read last week that Ruth went out to go glean in the fields to provide some food for her and Naomi. And the Lord providentially led her to glean in a man named Boaz's field, who showed amazing kindness to her. He gave her an abundance of food to, to take home and after a day's work, he welcomed her to come back every day to work in his field until the harvest season was over. Upon Ruth's return home, she learned from Naomi that Boaz was a relative of hers and one who could redeem them, who, according to Jewish law, could marry a deceased family member's spouse to perpetuate the family's name and one who could assume, buy back control of the family's land to perpetuate the family's inheritance. The hopelessness with which Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem instantly turned into hopefulness in the person of Boaz. The Lord, it seemed, would provide for them through him. But as chapter 3 opens, he hasn't done so yet. Chapter 3 begins with the word, then. It represents a transition of time. Verse 23 of chapter 2 says that Ruth kept gleaning in Boaz's field until the end of the barley and harvest season. Probably a, a barley and wheat season. Probably a three-month time period. Uh, Ruth would, would glean all day in Boaz's field and return home in the evening, it says, to, to live with her mother-in-law, Naomi. One would think, though, that by now, Ruth would be living with Boaz. All right. That after learning that he was their family's redeemer, that he'd fulfill his responsibilities, pursue Ruth, the widow of his deceased family member, marry her and take her into his home. But it's been months, and nothing's happened. And now the harvest season is over. And so there's no more daily interaction with Boaz. No need for Ruth to go to his field every day. Well, then, Naomi hatches a plan. With Boaz's slowness to initiate, Naomi takes the initiative. She says in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may go well with you? It's the same thing she said to to Ruth and Orpah back in chapter 1, verse 9, as she desired that they find husbands to provide for them back in Moab. Naomi really does want the best for Ruth. 
She wants her to have a husband who would care for her and protect her and secure a future for her. But friends, marriage isn't God's plan for everybody. We, we need to be clear about that. God can and has and does use singleness in extraordinary ways to serve his purposes. But marriage is God's plan for many. Strong, healthy marriages serve as a kind of vaccine against many of life's ills. From the sexual exploitation and abuse of women, to poverty, to financial and emotional instability. That doesn't mean that marriage makes us immune to any of those things, but it often better protects us from them, provides a stronger defense against them. Different is Naomi's thought process here than many in our day. Worldly wisdom in 2021 might tell Ruth, girl, you don't need no man. He ain't going to do nothing but hold you back. We can grind together and work things out all on our own. Or you don't need to marry no man. You can have all the benefits, sex, security, sustainability, without the title. Apart from this antiquated concept of a traditional marriage. But friends, God says in his timeless word, it is not good that man should be alone. So he provided a wife for him to be a helper for him and that he might pro- provide for and help her by caring for her. It was Jesus who echoed Moses and said that a husband should cleave to his wife as one flesh. It was the Apostle Paul who instructed that husbands are to care for their wives as they care for their own bodies. Like them, Naomi understood something of what a husband would be to a wife, the kind of care he would provide. And she wanted that for Ruth, especially in the person of Boaz, a a man of character and integrity, and one who was a close relative and could redeem her. I wonder how you're reacting to all that. Does this idea of marriage as a good thing as something to protect and care for a woman, rub you the wrong way. Perhaps it does because it's not been your experience. You are or have been married and you've hardly felt any of these benefits. Sorry. Sin hurts. It stings. Marriage is not a bulletproof vest. I pray the Lord would comfort you when you're hurt and that he would cause hearts to change so that you might be provided a better experience of what marriage should be. The Lord is able to do that. Perhaps it rubs us the wrong way, not because of experience, but because we've all so imbibed the world's teachings about a kind of radical individualism that it's changed our taste buds. And now the Bible's teachings about things like marriage taste sour, sound wrong. Friends, we must soak ourselves in the scriptures and ask the Lord to help us to view things the way the Bible views things, through biblical lenses. Naomi wants Ruth to be married. She wants Ruth to be married to Boaz. She senses that God wants the same. 
I mean, why else would Ruth just so happen to land in Boaz's field? And why else would Boaz be so kind to her? Don't no man be that kind to no woman unless you like her. Obviously, God is at work. Naomi is right. And so she decides to give God a hand. To move God's plan along a little faster. She tells Ruth that Boaz is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Winnowing is the last part of the harvesting process. After all the grain was cut and collected, winnowing was done to separate the, the chaff, the kind of outer husk, from the actual grain. This was something of the last shot with Boaz. So Naomi instructs Ruth in verse 3 to wash and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Naomi wants Ruth to make herself as presentable as possible to go initiate another encounter with Boaz. But as we read of Naomi's plans, there might be all kinds of questions rising up, alarm bells going off. At first, we might ask, is it wrong for Naomi to make plans here at all. I mean, maybe she should just trust God to provide. But I don't think her planning in and of itself is wrong. Planning is not opposed to God's purposes. We don't just say, well, if God want to do something, he's going to just have to do it. In a way that dismisses any effort on our part. I mean, as an example, God's purpose is to save many. He does it through his people going out to be his witnesses. And so it's altogether right for us to do what we'll do later in our members meeting, to make plans to use some of the resources the Lord has given us to accomplish those purposes. Planning is often proof of real faith. You believe God is doing something, and so you make plans to try to align with what God is doing. I think some of that is present here in Naomi. But there does seem to be a hint of, of rashness, of imprudence in Naomi's plan. I mean, what, she's getting, what is she getting at by telling Ruth to smell good and dress good to go visit this man at night? The text is filled with all kinds of ambiguities. For instance, in one sense, this idea of washing and anointing with oil and putting on different clothes is what someone did after mourning the loss of a loved one. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, after David mourned the severe sickness of the child he and Bathsheba had, that eventually led to death, we read that David arose and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes almost the exact sequence of what Naomi tells Ruth to do. So it could be that Naomi is telling Ruth to do these things to communicate clearly to Boaz that her time of mourning over the death of her husband is over. And she's ready to move on, to be pursued by a new husband. But why do it at night? 
I mean, under the cover of darkness is often when sin happens. And not only that, both Boaz and Naomi in chapter 2 warned Ruth of the danger present with a woman gleaning in the fields at daytime. She might get assaulted. How much more danger would there be for her at night? And what's this business about laying near him and uncovering his feet? Some of y'all would have been done just after that, like, <laughs> suggestion, right? <laughs> the literal term here of, of un- uncovering. All right, what does that mean? Well, in some instances, that uncovering means uncovering a person's nakedness. And what's going on here? The author, it seems, intentionally leaves a level of ambiguity. He doesn't dot every I or cross every T. But what he does mean for us to see is the detailed planning Naomi undertakes to secure marriage, a future for Ruth. Even desperately, Ruth is is forcing the issue and taking incredible risk. I mean, she instructs a good-looking, good-smelling young woman to go out at night by herself and snuggle up next to a man after he spent an evening of eating good and drinking good. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. I mean, if you live in the real world, everything could go wrong. So is this faith or foolishness? Probably a mix of both. And that way, Naomi is a lot like us. People who trust the Lord and believe in his purposes for us, to be for us and not against us, who try to make plans according to those purposes. But when life's hardships hit us, sometimes those plans are constructed to bring things to pass according to our own wisdom or lack thereof, and in our own timing. And yet, God, the wonderful, merciful God, providentially uses them. Our plans, even our sometimes faulty plans to bring about his purposes. We see him do that here through Ruth's response to Naomi's plan and resolve to follow it. That leads to point number two is we see resolve and the providence of God. In verse five to Naomi's plan, Ruth responded, all that you say I will do. Now, she could have gone the other way. <laughs> Naomi, I love you. You know I do. But you'd have bumped your head on this one. Do you hear how crazy this sounds? How risky this is? I'm sorry, but I cannot do this. But she pledges, pledges instead to do everything Naomi laid out. And she carries out her pledge. In verse 6, we read, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. This was a dangerous and a daring mission. We've noted that. There was the danger present of being assaulted on the way to Boaz. There was the danger of being sexually used by Boaz. Maybe he'd interpret her appearance at night only in a sexual manner. There was the danger of being rejected by Boaz. 
Yes, he's a close relative, but maybe he wouldn't marry her and serve as the family's kinsman redeemer. Maybe the reason he hadn't pursued Ruth yet was because he really wasn't interested. And yet, with all these risks present, Ruth's resolve is to do all she can to secure Boaz's care and protection and love in marriage. Because though Ruth goes out on this mission at night, it's not a shot in the dark. She's walked out in faith before and seen the Lord provide. She resolved to, to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem in chapter 1. The Lord protected them on that long journey, probably hundreds of miles on foot. And he brought them to the land. They came back because they heard that God had provided food again. And in chapter 2, Ruth resolved to go and find food for them. She didn't know exactly where she was going and, and couldn't guarantee success. But again, the Lord protected her on her journey and brought her back home with what she set out for. And so here, even with Naomi's risky and imperfect plan, Ruth resolves to go out again. Yeah, yes, partly in compliance to Naomi, but more so, I think, with confidence in God. You see, because while she pledged allegiance to Naomi, she also pledged allegiance to Naomi's God to the Lord, to Yahweh. And time and again, the Lord has proved himself faithful to this foreign woman. You see, saints, the, the Lord's track record trains us to trust him. The Lord's track record trains us to trust him. Seeing what he's done in the past strengthens our faith in the present. And so even in the face of danger, we walk by faith, Amen. not in circumstances, but in God. Right. We need not be paralyzed by the fear of what might happen. We don't need things to be perfect. Right. The perfect plan, the perfect setting, the perfect timing before we trust. We trust in a perfect God right. who perfectly loves us and who perfectly cares for us. And we step out in faith into a dangerous world with the Lord on every side, providing for and protecting us. Isn't that your experience? Uh, haven't you seen God work for you as you stepped out with imperfect planning and in imperfect settings, in the midst of all your fears and dangers? I mean, some of you have approached coworkers with your chest pounding with fear and anxiety and stumbled out the words, would you like to read the Bible with me? And amazingly, they say yes. Some of you work in dangerous and hostile settings. Several of you work in schools where there are constant fights and constant threats. Every day you step out in faith, trusting in the Lord's care and protection. And day after day, he's not only protected you, but given you opportunities to be a witness for him. Amen. To all the risks and dangers present, you say with Ruth, I will go. Why? Because God has said, I will go. 
He has pledged to Naomi and to Ruth and to us, to all his covenant people, I will be your God. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, in every place and in every setting, in all times, I will go with you. Ruth stepped out, trusting in God's faithfulness. But how will it go for her? How would her resolve to do all that's been planned to win Boaz's care turn out? The story continues to unfold. We read in verse 8 that at midnight, Boaz was startled and awakened. And as he turned over, behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz obviously is not used to waking up with a woman laying beside him. Friends, no unmarried man should be. Again, that's allowing the Bible to dictate to us what's normal and what's not. Men in the Bible, godly men, real men, don't brag about their body count. They don't live to see how many women they can bag. Boaz here, an older man, a man with some wealth, a man with property and with servant might be expected to have slept with dozens of women. I mean, money and power and sex all blend together in our society. But he's presented here as an unmarried man who even with a seemingly prime opportunity beside him, does not engage in sex outside of marriage. You hold, hold out that ethic today, and you get laughed at. That's unrealistic, unfair. But friends, this book is our standard for living. Not our opinions, not our desires, not our culture. Realize that the realest man who ever lived the manliest man who ever lived, right. Jesus Christ, was a 30-year-old virgin. All right. And while he might get clowned by people in our day as pathetic, mm. you know what God said of him? This is my beloved son, All right. All right. with whom I am well pleased. Mm. Obedience to God's word always pleases God. Amen. Young people, perhaps you're skeptical of this kind of sexual purity. Because the temptations you face are so strong. Or because you know that your parents or some of the older members here haven't always kept the kind of sexual purity that Boaz seems to have. And that we keep calling you to. But dear ones, again, we are not the standard. The Bible is. The Lord is. And where we ourselves have seen that standard and seen how far short we fall of that standard, we've had to confess our sins and repent of our sins and trust in the grace and mercy of Christ to forgive us. Amen. And having experienced that forgiveness, forgiveness, we call you now to not follow our sins, but to follow our Savior. All right. All right. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What intensity must have filled Ruth's mind here. She followed Naomi's plan faithfully. But now Boaz has awoken and is freaking out. He is not cool with her presence there. 
And Naomi said that he would tell her what to do. But he's now demanding Ruth to tell him who she is. It's dark. He can't see faces. He can smell fragrances. He can see figures. He knows it's a woman. Ruth says quickly but boldly, almost in staccato-like fashion. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Oh, as I earlier told Ruth back in chapter 2, verse 12, based on the kindness she'd showed to Naomi, he said, may the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And here now is Ruth telling Boaz to spread your wings over your servant. In essence, she's saying, be the answer to your own prayer. Be the provision, the covering, the protection, the husband whom God uses to give me refuge. You can do it. You are able, you are qualified, you are a redeemer. But will you? The bold action. A bunch of social conventions are being broken. Here was a woman proposing to a man. Here was a foreigner proposing to an Israelite. Here was a poor servant proposing to a landowner. Strange as it all is, Ruth has made her play. How will Boaz respond? This is the moment of climax in the story where, where people are at the edge of their seats. Well, what's going to happen next? Given all the norms that have been broken, Boaz could reasonably say, heck no. You have totally misplayed your hand. <laughs> Go back home and never come back here again. Or he, being an upright and moral man, could scold Ruth for this daring and unwise overture with all its possible sexual implications. He could dismiss her, her as a whore. Another fast woman thinking her body could buy her a husband. But Boaz does neither. Instead, he blesses Ruth in verse 10. In her actions, Boaz neither interprets them sexually nor socially unacceptable, but rather categorizes them as acts of kindness. A kindness greater even than the kindness she showed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She has shown kindness in that she didn't pursue just any man, a younger man, a more attractive man with more vibrancy, she's pursued him. Behind his words, you, you get the hint that Boaz had wanted to pursue Ruth, but perhaps assumed that because he was older, she'd reject him. He, he didn't want to impose upon her, but, but now she's resolved to come to him and ask him to marry her. And he will not turn her away. He tells her in verse 11, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, Amen. for you are a worthy woman. Ruth's resolve to follow God as she went into this field at night, seeking a husband, but not knowing what was to come, is met with Boaz's resolve to do all that she's asked of him about what Ruth must be feeling at this very moment. This crazy plan and my daring actions have actually worked. <laughs> God has given me all that I sought after. 
Naomi's heart must be rejoicing. The plans of man and the purposes of God have perfectly aligned. But then, verse 12, an obstacle is introduced that seemingly derails everything. And so, point number three, we see obstacles and the providence of God. Obstacles and the providence of God. Perhaps those two concepts are estranged in your mind. Obstacles or problems and God's providence. His working out his plans for you. I mean, God is God. Amen. He can remove any obstacle. Right. Eliminate every problem. He can. But contrary to what many of today's most famous preachers say, he doesn't always do so. Right. Here, things are looking up for Ruth. She's made this bold trip to see Boaz in the middle of the night. And made this bold request for marriage and been granted that request by Boaz. As their family's redeemer, he has vowed to redeem her. There's just one small problem, but a rather significant one, really. Boaz isn't the only redeemer. He says in verse 12, it is true that I am a redeemer, am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Now, notice here again the, the kind of man Boaz is. His thoughts are constantly Godward. Right. When he rode over and noticed a woman next to him, his thoughts weren't on getting laid, but on honoring the Lord with his body. And even here, when presented with the prospect of marriage, of redeeming Ruth and redeeming the land that belonged to, to Ruth, uh, to Naomi and her deceased husband and sons, his thoughts are on the Lord and his word. The Lord's word in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 48 through 49, granted these redemption rights to the nearest relative of the deceased. And though, again, a prime opportunity is before him, Boaz honors the Lord and his word. Amen. His desires are subservient to God's commands. And so he tells Ruth that to be biblical, we need to go find this other man. There's another redeemer. Friends, I wonder what happens when your strong desires butt up against God's word. Do you buck against that word or do you buckle up under it? Boaz said, the Lord's word is better than my desires. And even as he's ready and willing to go redeem Ruth, he must tell her because the Lord tells him there's another one. There's another one. And all this, Ruth has to be a mess. I mean, one minute ago, her heart was on cloud nine. And now it must instantly drop to the ground. I mean, she and Naomi had put all their chips in this basket had planned and resolved to go secure Boaz's hand in marriage. Amen. The Lord led Ruth to his field. Uh, he was the one who was giving signs that he was interested. I mean, remember the kind greeting he gave her. Remember all the food he gave her. Remember, he, he even invited her to eat at his table and gave her good food to eat. But now another man is in the picture, whom Ruth does not know at all and who has no history in this book of kindness. 
no mention of moral integrity. God's providential hand, which Ruth and Naomi had just begun seeing appear in their lives through these encounters with Boaz, seems hidden again. Maybe he wasn't directing them to Boaz after all. Maybe it was just chance. Problems in life, especially when we think we can see things working out, can often deflate us, can't they? That's certainly one possible outcome of it. It's one of the ways that Satan wants us to view problems or obstacles in life as signs that God isn't present or that God doesn't care. And so every problem becomes a source of deflation or discouragement or doubt or distrust. But God has plans even for our problems. He put them in our lives, not to toy with us, but to teach us to wait on him. Which leads to our fourth and final point, waiting on the providence of God. Waiting on the providence of God. Well, Ruth's heart is in her stomach from the news of verse 12. There's still hope. Boaz assures her that he will seek out this other redeemer and see what he will do. He tells her in verse 13, remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. We see here that this family redeemer didn't just have to meet the qualifications of being a close relative. That was only one part of the equation. He also had to be willing. Boaz was willing to redeem, but not able to do so outright because of a closer kin. This closer kin was able because of his blood relation to redeem, but he had to be willing to do so as well. Both had to be present for redemption to take place. Ability and desire on the part of the Redeemer. It reminds us of a future Redeemer, whom these kinsmen Redeemers foreshadowed, Jesus Christ, who came not to redeem one family or one piece of land, but all sinners who were trusting him. He was able to redeem because he was made like us in every way yet without sin. He was qualified by his perfect, sinless life to act as our Savior, to redeem us from our sins. But he was also willing to do so. Remember the leper in in Matthew chapter 8 who realized this phenomenon. He knew Jesus was able to change his situation. So he said to him, "If, if you will, you can make me clean. The ability to make him clean wasn't in question. The willingness to do so was. Jesus did not have to act. Jesus warms his heart with his response. I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Oh, to know that we have a redeemer who wants to redeem us and who has acted to redeem us. 
The Lord Jesus laid down his perfect life for us and died in our place and rose from the grave to redeem us, to rescue us from the bondage of sin. He has done that for so many of us, rescued and redeemed us, and he will do that for you today, right now, if you turn from your sins and trust in him. You want to know more about what that looks like for you? Talk to someone around you after service. Come find me at the door. We'd love to tell you how today you might know Jesus Christ as your redeemer. The same is not true for Ruth, however. She knows now of two possible redeemers, one who is able and one who is willing, but she must wait for her redemption. She must remain here on the threshing floor in the field until morning to find out what will happen. Verse 14 says, so she lay at Boaz's feet until the morning with her stomach probably in all kinds of knots in anticipation, tossing and turning, her mind racing. Will this other man redeem or will he not? And if he does redeem, what kind of man is he? What kind of husband will he be? Would he be as kind as Boaz, as generous as Boaz, as noble as Boaz? The waiting period was probably killing her. She'd gone out to the field that night expecting to secure an answer immediately regarding redemption. And she thought she had it in verse 11. But verse 12 has totally transformed things. And now she finds herself in the same predicament as when chapter 3 began, waiting for redemption. Now you might think, look, this is just a couple of hours of waiting. It's already midnight, and Boaz told her that she just to wait until the morning to find out what will happen. And let's not exaggerate things here. It it won't be that much angst. But tell that to a small child on a short trip. Five minutes into a 20-minute drive to school, and they're desperately asking you, how much longer? How much longer? So think of how just the short wait for us adults fills us with angst, especially when it's for a major matter. The results from the pregnancy test come back in moments. The results from the biopsy will come in the morning. The response from the job interview is promised within hours. But the wait feels like forever. You're pacing constantly, staring at your phone, repeatedly pressing refresh on your email feed. When will you know something? How much longer? How much longer? I think that's probably something of what Ruth was feeling, racing through her heart all throughout the night. But Boaz seeks to calm her heart in the morning. We read in verses 14 and 15 that upon waking, Boaz acts towards Ruth like the husband that he can't yet officially be. He protects Ruth, and he provides for her. He protects her reputation. He says in verse 14, presumably to his workers, don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz knows what the assumption will be, that Ruth came and did something inappropriate with Boaz. As we know, nothing actually happened. And Boaz doesn't want even the appearance or thought that something happened occurring. 
in a way that would taint Ruth's reputation for being a, a worthy woman. Text her. And then he provides for her. He tells her in verse 15 to bring the garment she was wearing, and he turns it into something of a knapsack, filling it with a bunch of barley and sends her back home. The scene is reminiscent of the end of chapter 2, where Boaz filled Ruth with a bunch of barley before he sent her home. And like there, we read here that when Ruth returned, she was immediately met by her mother-in-law, Naomi. And just like in chapter 2, Naomi greets Ruth with a question. In chapter 2, upon seeing all that Ruth brought back, Naomi asks, where did you glean today? It's a reasonable question. She sent Ruth out to get food, and she came back with a bunch of food. Where did it all come from? But here the situation is different. Though Ruth again returns with a bunch of grain, that's not what Naomi sent her out for. She sent her out to get a husband. And so even though Naomi sees all the food, it's not evident what happened. Is this some sort of consolation prize? So Naomi asks anxiously in verse 16, how did it fare, my daughter? How did things turn out? You see, she's been waiting all night too back in the city of Bethlehem, uh, again, with no knowledge of what was going on in the field, until Ruth explains to her all that the man had done for her, what he communicated and what he vowed he was going to do. And Ruth tells Naomi in verse 17 exactly what Boaz wanted to communicate. He gave these six measures of barley, saying to Ruth, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Boaz knew that Naomi would be home anxiously waiting on the outcome of this proposal. And this abundance of food that Ruth brought back was intended to be a kind of visual display of what Boaz meant to do for them, care for and redeem them. It was a sign of his good intentions, meant to be something of a surety, a guarantee of his commitment towards them. And Ruth rightly interprets the sign and confidently instructs Ruth in verse 18 to wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For this man will not rest until he settles the matter today. She is sure that Boaz will act for them. After the elaborate plans, the bold resolve to carry out those plans, here these two women are waiting on Boaz, ultimately on the providential hand of God to provide for them, Amen. to carry out his plans, waiting for their redeemer, but not hopeless, rather hopeful. There's a sign that the one they're waiting for will do what is right. Thanks. do you have the same confidence? You see, we're in a season of waiting too. We're waiting for our Redeemer to return. Yeah, waiting for Jesus Christ to come back and take us as his bride into his eternal home. Amen. And while we wait, there's all kinds of discouragements, all kinds of troubles that arise that might tempt us to take matters into our own hands 
or to turn back because we've been waiting for so long, thinking that there's no hope. But like Ruth and Naomi, we too have been given a sign that our Redeemer will come back and deliver us. For us, that sign is not a bunch of crops, it's a bloody cross. When tempted to feel hopeless, like God doesn't care for us, like there's no rescue for us from all the painful things in life, no rest for the weary, we're to look at the cross of Christ. Look what God has done for you. The eternal Son of God took on flesh for you and died a death for you, the death that you deserve to die, to make you his forevermore to free you from the bondage of sin and death and unite, him to, unite you to himself forever. Amen. Look at what Christ has already done for you as you wait for what he will return and do for you. Make all things right. So we can rest even as we wait. Knowing that God is working all things out for us, for our good according to his purposes. He works for those who patiently wait on him. Lord, we thank you for your resolve to redeem us, which is far greater than our resolve to be redeemed. We thank you that you've accomplished our redemption through the willingness of a Savior who loved us and who laid down his life for us that we might be his. Lord, we pray that you would keep our eyes stayed on him as we wait for the redemption, the final redemption of our bodies, where we will be united with Christ forever. Until that time, Lord, grant us hope, grant us joy, grant us perseverance. Grant us faith in our beloved Jesus. In his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.